Good afternoon, good evening, everybody, wherever you are uh, in the world. Happy to join us. I'm joined by uh, Greg Gunn of commit.dev. Welcome, Greg. Hey, Sam. How's it going? Hey, everyone. All right. And for, for those of you guys that are joining and this is your first launch AMA, the rules are really, really simple. We have a Q&A button here for you guys listening live. If you're listening on the podcast later, just chill and enjoy the content. But if you are here live, uh, feel free to pump questions away in the Q&A and then I'll kind of, I'll kind of moderate for, for everyone and kind of pass it along to Greg. Um, but just to kick things off, so, so everybody's on the same page, Greg, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you know, how you guys started as an entrepreneur and, and you know, what you're kind of generally speaking doing with Commit. Yeah, uh, how I started as an entrepreneur, like I remember the day that I heard that word for the first time. It was grade five in Mrs. Jacobs' class, and we were touring a local pizza place in Victoria, British Columbia, where I grew up. And first of all, it's like a really cool world word when you're, you know, what, 12, 13, when you see that word. But then I just like learned that you could create the rules, right? Like my parents are both teachers. We were very kind of like middle, middle class, followed the rules. I always uh, got chastised for what my mom would call being a wheeler dealer. Uh, not in the most positive terms, but like somebody that was always trying to find the edges on things, find, build things. And so it kind of was something that I was always attracted to. Uh, and then once you start to see that word, people that are entrepreneurs, you start paying attention to it. It really kind of uh, caught fire for me uh, when I was able to like focus in on that in undergrad. And it was an entrepreneurship session at UVic where it's a bunch of people that want to build new things. And that's like a really powerful thing once you find your tribe of folks that want to build things with you. And so I did that. I started up a software company uh, with some other UBIC uh, alumni uh, while in, during my undergrad. And we did eBay market data. And that was my first real taste of being that like software startup going down to the bay area you know doing those partnerships being in victoria but going down there kind of being on the outside being a canadian but also being able to like partner with some of the biggest you know software companies at that time and so from that i did that then i learned about social entrepreneurship and i spent some time in nigeria working with women's farming co-ops which kind of satisfied the social impact side of things uh, with my desire to build new things uh, and that transitioned to uh, Hootsuite, where it was one of the first kind of, was my first rocket ship experience, where I got to join as the first business person. That's where I met, met my co-founder, Bear Kai, and really got in the beginning of that rocket ship. But basically, my entire career has been uh, around building new things and figuring out that like early stage go-to-market you know, how do you figure out, get those early stage customers on board, but then how do you think strategically about how you build scalable systems? amazing and and you know i know there's some uh, some early stage companies that are listening right now so if you have any questions specifically about that feel free to pump them in uh but we'll keep talking so so like you guys started commit a couple of years back now right like what was kind of like the the motivation that kind of kicked you over and said i gotta do this yeah well i think um i was in eir an entrepreneur in residence with a bc firm in canada Inovia. And I was seeing kind of like what you guys do with lunch time. I was seeing so many great um, founders come in the door and have amazing world-changing ideas, uh, even have funding, most of them. Uh, but one of the biggest challenges they had was finding folks that wanted to build uh, that. And I had a lot of experience of, you know, working with entrepreneurial engineers in the past. And I was just like, ah, this is like a real shame. It's a real shame 
that all these things could be built if they were able to resource them correctly. Uh, and then I met with my better half, my smarter half, Bear Kai, who wrote the first line of code at uh, Hootsuite uh, and managed half of the engineering team there. And he informed me that I was thinking about the problem wrong, which meant that I was thinking about the problem wrong. It was like, you're thinking about it from the institutional lens. You're not thinking about it from the individual lens. Like, why is it that the engineers that love building things stop taking bets on startups was the big kind of first question that he had. And so we started, as I recommend most companies to start, was with validating the problem. And so we had 56 different problem interviews with senior full stack tech leads that we know were really talented through our network. And Bear's just one of those people that's always been a big community leader and has a pretty big network of engineers. And we asked them really simple questions going, you're an amazing engineer. You love building new things. Why are you stuck at Amazon optimizing a button? And it's not the good Amazon. It's the Amazon, I'm sorry, in Canada where you get you don't get treated as a first-class citizen. And so we started to record these, these problem interviews and it boiled down to three core problems that we needed to solve to help the existing population of really talented senior full-stack engineers follow their passion and become masterful at starting new things. That's awesome. And, and just to, for those that are, I saw a couple of people roll in, what, what is Commit's vision? What are, you, what are you guys trying to do? Honestly, we want to completely decouple geography from opportunity. I'm born and raised in Victoria, passionate about computers my entire life. My co-founder is from China, moved to Canada to pursue his, his dreams. Historically, we've never had a choice. We've always had to move locations to be able to be as ambitious as we want to be. And, you know, if you're going to start a startup, the most likely reason, the, the, the most likely outcome is you're going to fail, right? So you might as well fail at something that's important uh, and to, fail at something that's worth failing at. And for us, it came down to equality, equality of opportunity. And so, listen, man, I was in the same time zone as uh, um, San Francisco and Silicon Valley. I had a lot of advantages, but I was always just kind of on the outside. And I knew that the people that I grew up with in Victoria, British Columbia, were no less talented or collaborative than the people that I was working with in the Bay Area. And then I got to travel the world and go to places like Nigeria where the, the, the same um, observation held true. And so the cool thing about the future of work is that we can absolutely get rid of the geographic lottery that's dictated success in so many people's lives, mine included. I've got some, because I came from Victoria, I had some advantages. Um, but for us, we think that there's this huge opportunity to actually, uh, no matter where you live in the world, to be able to build out a first-class uh, computer engineering career and be supported by a community like Commit. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I would definitely want to come back to geography, um, but first I want to talk a little bit about, about the community. So I know you guys spent, uh, I, I, I haven't written down 24 months, it might have been more or less, um, yeah. what we call private beta, right? Can you kind of describe what was building that initial traction like? Like, like I and I love that you said that you did 50, was it 53? I already forgot. 56. You still remember 56. 56 yeah. 50, you still remember the number of customer interviews you did, which I yeah. love. Yeah. Um, but like from there, what was building that initial traction like? Like, how were you able to, I guess, first gather the the people? And then I'm guessing the people stuck around, right? Yeah. Well, um, again, I'll give all the credit to my co-founder, who's an amazing engineer, amazing leader in his own right. And he had strong relationships with people that were right in our target audiences that trusted him, right? And so the beginning of this was, I had a lot of social capital with the startups. 
through my experiences and being involved with communities and being an authentic person that loves startups, loves, I want, like, whenever somebody's on the fence about joining a startup, don't talk to me because I will, I will absolutely try to get you over the edge. (laughs) I will try to, I will try to. Uh, But then my co-founder is a really authentic uh, person that cares deeply about the craft of software engineering and the people that practice that craft. So the first cohort all of them are still with us. There was a first cohort of 10 folks that uh, trusted us, wanted to build something special, wanted to do what's right for themselves, wanted to do what's right for others, and wanted to do what's right for other engineers out there. Because that's really the core of commit. We have one operating principle, which is do what's right for the engineer. And that's about progressing the craft of engineering for it so that individuals can, can per, uh, persevere and support each other and grow. And so honestly, like I really cherish the pre-series A stage. I'm like almost, I think when you first do startups, you kind of want to claim product market fit really quickly. I, we are not a product market fit. I know what product market fit feels like. You get pulled out. But this time that you're building the fund, fundamentals of your company, A, we're focusing on the core principles of our company, but then B, we're focused on delighting the hell out of our customers. And so, you know, whenever we weren't really putting an emphasis on growth, but it kind of naturally came from focusing on solving the little problems for our our customers and our customer number one, A, our engineers. And so we do what's right for them. We solve problems for them and we keep on iterating. And honestly, the thesis is if you delight the heck out of these people, like our North Star metric is NPS then they tell other folks and pretty soon you know we had like a wait list of 200 engineers that wanted to get into commit so i I would say that it was just not focusing on scale it was really just focusing on the core problems that we're solving for our target audience doing that to like 110 percent and just keep on iterating with those folks Uh, because you know if you solve problems for a small group of people that's growing rapidly you'll start to attract other people that see that problem as being pretty urgent and impactful for them as well Mm-hmm. And, and just a note for those that, that aren't familiar with acronym NPS is a net promoter score. So it talks about customer satisfaction. Yeah, um, it's imperfect, but it's a good directional, you know, gauge to see, are we improving things or are we making things worse? Mm-hmm. And then, so talking about those, those initial folks, right. Um, how, like, I, I think, I think, you know, obviously commits had success and they were able to delight customers put yourself in another shoe of, of, you know, the more norm, which is it's a failed failing startup. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are kind of like the indicators that, you know, you should push through versus this is not working. This is a wall. I got to reset. Right. Cause I think that's one of the biggest questions is knowing when to quit. And I've talked about this with, with past speakers as well. Right. But like for you, like what kind of indicators were like, cause I'm sure it wasn't all just smooth. I'm sure there were difficult points as well. And you talk about your, oh, sure. not a lot of things. Fit. Exactly. Right. What, what kind of was indicators that like, you know, this is going to work. We just got to tweak. I want to answer that question to provide value. And it's like, it's hard to give that, like, I don't have an obvious. Yeah. And it's not exact. Right. But I'm trying to. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll I'll tell you, you guys, I'll tell you how I minimize having to ask myself that question. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, commit is a purpose with the company. Mm-hmm. like we knew that this huge macro like when we started the company we had a top line like we, we over indexed on where things are going to be at 20 years what we were willing to fill at but we had a really clear articulated like almost like an investment thesis but it's an investment of our time thesis right like the top line thesis and this was two and a half years ago 
was the best software companies in the world would be remote first for two core reasons, access to talent, capital efficiency. And so once you kind of say that this is the hill I'm willing, like your top line thesis is basically, this is the hill I'm willing to die on. But I'm, it's also going like, this is a macro trend that we fully believe that's gonna happen. And it's almost like picking a problem space at the beginning, like, oh, I wanna solve problems for that, this, right? And so for us, we knew at the very beginning that this was the, the, the top tier, but it wasn't until we asked a couple more and then once that we got down to like the real hill that we were gonna die on. But the kind of more core thing was, in this remote first world, we really believe that the second order of this thesis was that, you know, software engineering was going to be the first default remote, default asynchronous, and more like custom, customized, individualized, almost project-based career in the entire world. We can talk a lot about that, but we'll kind of put a bookmark in that for now. And so we fundamentally know that the nature of work is changing. And we fundamentally believe that software engineering is the books category of this new area. So for us, it was like, this is the problem area that we believe there's going to be so much momentum to solve problems in that we're going to dedicate our lives to. And we even made a commitment to run the company bootstrapped for the first like 24 months so that we had the opportunity to learn as much as possible. Because this was a big, gigantic wave that we're not even questioning it's happening, right? Like, this is where I don't even question, like, like I'm choosing, to, I'm not giving up on this space. Like, there's a time frame that this absolutely happens. So I get to not, I have the luxury of not questioning on whether or not this problem space is going to evolve, right? So that's taking away a lot of my, my, my worry right, right away. Now the question is, what are the urgent impactful problems that I can solve in that space? And then I de-risk that further by talking to the people that I want to serve in that space and really zeroing in. And honestly, I tell it, I've read way too many business books, way too many entrepreneurship books. The number one book that I always recommend to entrepreneurs is Running Lean by Ashmura. And it's just like step by step. It's so simple. Start with the problem interview, then do the solution interview, start building out your, 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 your lean canvas. Absolutely great. It's like by doing the, for me, it's like, what are you willing to fail at? What's the big macro trends? Who are we going to serve? How are we going to ask these questions? That gives me this luxury of, okay, like, there's something here. I just got to trust in my problem solving abilities to like actually whittle this down to a, a company. And then I guess the second part of that is in our case, and this is not everyone's case because there's, you know, important companies that need to build that can't do it this way. We decided to do this uh, bootstrapped at the beginning. So we had control over our learning outcomes and that we, once we kind of got that smoke that we were able to have control over when we brought people on board. So for us, I don't think it's a question on whether or not our company is going to succeed because we've already succeeded. We already grew to, I don't think we're public about it, but like X million of dollars in annual recurring revenue without anybody else's money. Mm -hmm. But now it's about how big can we make it? Yeah. And no, that's a, that's a great segue. And I, I just want to put a pause for, for people that listen live. I think one of the things, and this is a cliche term, but I want to highlight it anyway, like there's clear conviction when you start talking about the, the problem you're solving, like even from the beginning, like, like you, you know, this is a problem worth solving. Right. And, and I think, I think especially really, really early stage entrepreneurs like ideation and we're, and this isn't most of the people in the room, but maybe you're listening. Like, like, I think you need to figure out how convicted and how committed you are to trying to solve that problem too. Right. Because it's, it's varying levels. Right. Um, some people get into entrepreneurship for the wrong reasons and they end up finding out they are an entrepreneur too. Right. So, so like, it's, it's not, it's not one, one shoe fits all for sure. No, um, man. But and also it's like I, I everyone, hear that conviction in your voice for sure. 
I think that there is also a luxury, man. Like, let's be realistic about it. Like, mm -hmm. there's that um, Steve Jobs quote of, you know, you want to create a dent in the universe, right? And everyone kind of subscribes to these things. And I think that it, <laughs> if you're if you're Steve Jobs, if you were born into a, a family with the wealth of Steve Jobs, you can automatically go, oh, I get to, I have the safety net. I can go create a dent in the universe, right? But usually for most of us, the first dent we're creating is in our own universe, our own universe. And like, there is a reason why I learned at the lap of some really great entrepreneurs as their right hand for 15 years uh, before I decided to get to a place where I could do it on my own. And for me, financial security was important, right? And like, I think that's like just absolute something that if we're going to create a more inclusive and diverse founder base we need to be honest about that right like man I, I didn't feel like I was in a position to risk it all you know when I was like coming out of university right like I had bills to pay and I had certain we're all kind of programmed we're grown up in terms of how we deal with money and like debt is bad and so you know for a lot of us the path to entrepreneurship is different so I don't hate on somebody that sees a really great opportunity to make a dent in their universe but I really do encourage people that if they can think beyond that and go, you know, what is the purpose beyond this? What am I willing to fail at? What is a path that absolutely, even if I fail, I'm learning and I'm growing. Um, then you get to have that luxury of even if I fail, I'm learning. Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, talking a little bit back about book commit and what you just kind of mentioned there. Like, so you like the story is that you guys were bootstrapped. You guys were revenue positive. It sounds like, right. Um, yeah. You're making money. But then you decided to go fundraising. What was like the, the motivation behind that? And could you describe a little bit about that process? Because I'm sure a lot of people are curious about it. Yeah, honestly, I like to attribute everything as an interaction, right? It's either an interaction with a customer or an advisor. And uh, the former GM of products at Watt Prep had Tarun. I was introduced to them through some folks that I know via who had been great investors and great supporters. And it was the summer of last, last year. Yeah, geez. Wow, it wasn't that long ago. It feels like it was forever. <laughs> we were in this problem space, solving problems. We knew this was worth uh, like, like figuring out. And, we're, and, and like, I need to have a certain level of conviction before I was going to take anybody else's money, right? And so the first kind of level was figuring out how this thing was going to scale. And one of the, I think for him, it was like a casual observation, but he's a very intelligent person. So I wouldn't, ima I would imagine that it, like there's lots of synapses firing for him to get there, but Turin made the observation actually and Turin's now an investor. Uh, Turin made the observation that um, in a remote first world, every interaction between an employer and an employee is digital and therefore it's trackable. And that set off a really interesting thing for me, which was, we have all these tools out there, kind of surveillance nanny software. You kind of hear a lot about these horror stories at Amazon, but there are some like good tools out there where it's like, if you're a distributed team or you want to make sure like if employees are engaged, you know, connect your Slack, connect your Gmail, connect your GitHub, connect all this stuff together and see who's engaged. And so there's lots of organizations that are using all that data uh, for the institution, right? To, for the, to optimize the institution. But what happens if we could use that data to optimize the individual and give them more agency over their career? And so with Commit, that was one of the big things that we thought, oh, that's the backbone of what we're building here. And so those are things that are hard tech that you need to build. And so for us, it was like fleshing out this concept. It started out as a data room, then it turned into this record of work that we're, we're working on right now, where it's all for the individual. We collect all the data. We, first of all, 
every interaction that you have with the commit team uh, during the assessment process and onboarding, we, we track that and we create a record of work for you as an individual, if you're an engineer in our community. And then we use that data to streamline the core parts of your career. And the three core parts of any software engineering career, any career in general, but obviously we just focus on software engineering, is getting support from other engineers. We call that peer-to-peer -peer support. You know, be able to come up with a career plan and an actual map towards getting there. That's learning and growth. And then career transitions. And like, there's really, really simple things that we can do with that data uh, that can absolutely uh, 10x the engineers in our community. And that all required us to do that deep software um, kind of data algorithm software fundamental build out. And that's why one of the reasons why we uh, raised the money to do what we're going to do, because we saw that path to being an exponential growth company. For sure. And that, that sounds a lot like an athlete watching their own in-game footage just to, to learn from themselves, right? Just yeah. to simplify it. Yeah. And honestly, man, like these things, the, 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 the luxury of experience is, hmm, the, the curse of experience is that you don't feel the highs as much and you don't feel the lows as much. <laughs> I guess that's the curse of the highs, the luxury is the lows, but you also start to trust your instincts on things, right? And so like, mm -hmm. I know that that conversation with Troon, I had some things, his, the conversation with him fired some synapses here where I was like, oh, I got to pay attention to this. And then you, as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, you can start to piece things together. But again, that goes into the strategy that we employed, tons of different ways to start companies where we're like, Here's a macro trend. Here's something that we're passionate about, you know, and here's the problem area and the customer that we want to work with. We're going to do the manual stuff. And then we're going to, and then honestly, it's like trusting the fact that you've done this before. You've solved problems before. You've built scalable systems before. You've just got to find these triggers in this new space. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, so, so kind of continue on with that story. You guys saw an opportunity for, for exponential growth, um, decided to fundraise and, and, if, if my math is correct, at least some of the fundraising was done during COVID times, or at least oh, all of it. whatever. I haven't met any of my, I haven't met any of my investors. So, so I think a lot of listeners are, are kind of curious, like, you know, fundraising isn't an easy task in, on a normal day. What was it like during, during COVID and like, what did you guys have to alter or, or change or in terms of how you, whether it's time spent or strategy or whatever it is. Right. So with the 15 plus years I've had in, entrepreneurship, being a part of startups and everything. Mm -hmm. This is my first fundraise. So I'm not going to go like, this is every, like, I'm not going to be that sage. Like, oh, I'm like, you know, multiple <laughs> six figures seven nine figure exits or whatever. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's kind of like, I also had a kid during COVID. So it's like, you're like, oh, what's wow. it like having a kid during COVID? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know any other way to do it, man. That could like, be a question later on, Matt. <laughs> yeah, dude. This is asking um, me anything. So. so I just think in general, I think actually, here's my rule, friend. In general, everything is 10 times more difficult during COVID. Agreed. Probably the only thing that wasn't 10 times more difficult was fundraising. I yeah. actually think it was... Mm, I get, yeah, you know what I can't even, It just... It was difficult. But here's the thing about fundraising. Everyone fucking lionizes fundraising. They always like... It's this badge of honor that every entrepreneur carries. And they... I don't like things that distance, you know, accomplishments, right? Like, it's like everyone on this is listening to this has done something hard. So it's like everything you've done that's hard, you know? 
the first stage, you're kind of like, oh, I can figure this out. Like I'll read the right amount of things and stuff. And then the second stage is like, oh shit, this is like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And like, I can't explain anything to anybody. Like this is really, really difficult. Uh, and then you start to the third phase is you start to get your kind of blocks together, right? And so in fundraising, it's like, oh, here's my story blocks, right? Like you're getting your pitch deck together and you're pre practicing, practicing, practicing. And you're like, oh, it's A, B, C, D. And then you talk to somebody that you have a lot of respect for. And they're like, actually, it should be B, A, C, D. And you're like, oh, yeah, good. that makes sense or whatever. And then you present, you present to somebody else that you really respect. And they go, actually, it should be A, B, C, D. And then you can get really frustrated because you're getting conflicting information. And you have to, you're like swearing up a storm going, oh, man, this is so stupid and then you go for a run get all that energy out and then you come back and you ask the most important question at that stage which is okay let's assume both are right what's the greater truth here right and as a founder that went through the bootstrapping phase and having a, a really great mature team that allowed me to really just focus on fundraising here's the thing that most people don't talk about they usually bitch about fundraising I know my business so much better after this process. So it's kind of like, you know, somebody, I, I can tell you why it's ABCD, because if I do BACD, I know exactly what are all the knock-on effects of that. Because you might at the onset go, it doesn't really matter how I describe the story. It fucking matters. It does matter. And like at the end of this process, you got to think about this as a growth opportunity. You, when else, you don't get that much opportunity as an early stage founder to think deeply about your business and get really close with it and working on it. And so the two things I give anybody is like, it's not the most difficult thing on earth. It's a hard thing, but you've solved hard things before. So you have to approach it with some sort of strategy for sure. You've got to work through it. You can catalyze steps. You can't, you can't skip them. But this is an absolutely great opportunity for you to be able to learn more about the business that you're dedicating your life to. That's, that's, that's amazing. I, th I think that's a really unique opportunity. And I think it a little bit aligns with, with what you talked about earlier. Just, just like if, if even if it fails, you're learning, right? So, so. Yeah fundraising is just another another piece of that right you gotta assume uh, the default is you're gonna fail and this is why people with safety nets it's kind of i don't know you sam do you play poker no no okay but like when you go to a poker table and someone's got a big stack they can splash yeah. the pot it's like okay you're doing the minimum bets and they're gonna like go over the top they're gonna like you know do 10 times your bet and it's like every hand you've got to like go it do i have the best hand like uh, you can't just play with a mediocre hand, right? And there's yeah. this extra pressure. And we've got to acknowledge that as, as a society of entrepreneurs and people that like building stuff is like, you know, you can, like, there is that financial thing. But once you get to the stage where you're like, okay, this is a personal journey, because this is the best hack for anybody. It's like, if you're a learning animal and you want to create things, starting your own company is a great way to do that, because you actually get to pick projects and topics that you're passionate about, that you're intrinsically motivated about, that you get to go and learn. And if you can kind of focus more on the learning side of things as much as possible, um, you're not going to lose. For sure. For sure. Um, moving along, one of the things obviously post-fundraise was, was hiring. Um, and obviously you guys have the benefit of building something that connects you to, to a great developer network. But I, I can also imagine that wasn't just you know, roseate from, from day one as well. What was, what was hiring some of your early, I guess, I guess you could be pre-launch and post-launch, uh, sorry, pre-raise and post-raise as well. What was, what was some of the, the successes that you found when you were hiring, I guess, engineers or, or other people on your team? 
So I think specifically you're looking for like, hey, if I'm hiring people, what are the things that I should be doing that like increase think, my odds of finding so. great people? I think so. And I think yeah. great is subjective. I think it's also people that, that you jive well with, et cetera. Yeah. So here's the overall thesis. And then we'll get to more tactical things that you can do. Um, for you to win and hire, you got to build processes around individuals. It's got to be a selfless, as much as you possibly can a selfless experience. Because here's the thing, what most early stage managers, hires will do is they'll be like, oh, I need somebody for this role. So I got to go find somebody and convince them to take this role and go and contribute to this, right? That's a, by its nature, a very self-interested way to think about hiring, right? Um, what you will, you'll get somebody in there, but these are individuals that have their own desires and things like that. Uh, and, and things that they want to become masterful at. And it's not going to work long-term if you don't really pay attention to what that individual wants to become masterful at, right? Like that's pretty key. And so the act of hiring, the people that do it well, is it's a truly empathetic um, thing. So like whenever you're interviewing somebody, they're going to ask a ton of questions. They're not going to know as much about your business as you are, right? And so one of the practices that we have here is... And it sounds, it sounds, this like does drastically cut back on the people that you are going to be able to hire, but it's like knowing what you know about your business and knowing what you know about this individual, if you, if the roles were reversed, if you were them, would this be the perfect next step for you? Is this going to be the perfect next, like for what they want to become masterful, where they want to go in their career? Are you going to provide them a product, which is employment that solves a problem, which is their career that and like really doing that empathetically, because if you're just tricking people to join your organizations, you'll have high churn. This is one of the major reasons why the average engineer stays at a startup for 1.5 years is because A, the process that we go through to help for them to find their own job is like at least three to four months where they have to train up on something called leak code so that they can do technical <laughs> reviews. And one of the reasons why uh, one of our, one of our, honestly, one of the greatest uh, angel investors around not, not only just Canada, Farhan, who's the VP of engineering at Shopify invested in us is like, he's hired thousands and thousands of engin engineers. He knows he's got like a blog article that's technical interviews are garbage because for engineers specifically, it's like we ask them to train up on this thing that has nothing to do with their business just to prove how smart they are. And the only correlation between a technical interview and somebody being able to build code with you, sorry, the only thing that a technical interview uh, is correlated with is people that are good with court with technical interviews, not whether or not they can actually build code with you. So uh, I think that the process that engineers have to go through to find a job is pretty effed up. It's multiple, you know, months, many different people that they need to be with pretty wasteful. It's not built around them. So if you, what you can do as a founder is really create an empathetic, you know, policy for your, your HR team where it's just like, hey, I'm going to like, yeah, there's this role that we need to find, but I also want to find somebody where we solve a problem for them, where we, you know, we authentically do. But then beyond that, I would say that the most tactical thing that you can do, that's more of a philosophy. The tactical thing you do is just speed. Like, like people underestimate speed. It's just like a website. The website doesn't load up in time. You kind of move on. 
Um, it's the simplest, most difficult, it's the simplest thing to say, but one of the most difficult things to do, which is really try to speed up the flow from first intro to when you're actually giving a job offer to somebody. I think speed is probably the most tactical thing that if anybody wants to think about that you need to move with if you're going to try to improve your hiring flows. Because again, speed is, it's, it's difficult because it's giving something up on the, on the company side, which is, oh, I want to find a bunch of different candidates and I want to like, oh, I want to, it's like, no, because you're moving, you're building a process for an individual that needs change in their life. They're interested in you now. Let's kind of make the, build this around them so that they have, they're not, they're not sitting waiting for your answer for multiple months. And, and to give a practical example, what do you see as the usual from, from first conversation to, to offer? Like what, what kind of time span are we looking at? With normal founders? Uh, with let's say you're hiring engineers or whatever, or for you guys. Well, well, so there's stats out there. There's a levels, a company that does uh, pay scale stuff. Um, for your average startup, it takes 160 uh, inbound applicants to find one employee. Wow. And that's usually like three to four months. And this is like speed from when you post the job to when you hire somebody. Right. So like whenever we're hiring non-engineering roles, um, we, um, factor in three to four months, right? Like whenever, like we're going to be posting a uh, shout out, we're going to be posting out a, you know, marketing <laughs> role here, uh, uh, probably this week, we have a marketing role and a dev role. Um, and so I'm just approving those, but it's going to be three to four months till we find the right candidate for these non-engineering roles. Uh, because you need to get 160 inbound applicants to really will we'll let down to like maybe your top 10 and like interview those and stuff like that. Now, we have better processes than I think your average startup on those, but we're still kind of in that bucket. Um, with Commit, the founders that we work with, they meet with uh, 1.6 engineers before they make a hire. So we're, we built systems that are 100 times more efficient. Wow. So go from like 160 applicants over four months, the average founder that works with Commit meets with 1.6 engineers and they have that person working with them a week later. I think somebody in the room is going to clip that and save it as a, as a stat for later. <laughs> that's, that's an amazing quote. Um, Listen, man, like that's the result of building a process around individuals and not institutions. And every founder that we know with, we partner with, knows that engineers are our number one customer. Now, the engineers at the, at the, at the, at the startups we work with are 1B, 1A and 1B. But, you know, we focus on finding the most talented, collaborative, engineers in the world to be a part of our community and there's a lot of efficiencies when you factor in the data side of things that we do to help match people up uh, around what the next leg of the journey looks like yeah for sure um and i mean speaking of hiring like we we talked about it a bit off air uh where does geography play a role i think i have a bit of an answer from what we talked about earlier but let's come back to it like are you hiring globally are you hiring only in your time zone how what's your guys kind of thoughts on that so one of the reasons why we decided to bootstrap early on is that the number one enemy of any startup is timing, timing the market, right? Like we're going, there's like a big th wave coming. And so we kind of have timed this first stage of the market fairly well. COVID amplified that. We believe that, you know, software engineering is the first default remote position in the world. Now, remote doesn't mean asynchronous. Like asynchronous comes later. So the working theory thesis that we still have is that, you know, today, the best software engineers are going to be remote uh, for 
their own reasons, like basically uh, lifestyle reasons are pretty important there. And we got to support them with institutions like commit to make sure that they're learning and, and, and connecting with opportunities. But time zones still matter today. They just do, especially for um, decentralized organizations. But it's going to be a pretty, it's pro I'm probably underestimating it. I think three years from now, it will become default asynchronous because if you think about the confluence of uh, tools that are coming together and the autonomous mobility of people and things like collaboration over time and space uh, is going to become even more easy. And I think that it's one of the simplest critiques people have about decentralized teams, but it ignores a lot of the biases that office space work has where they're like, oh, I just can't collaborate i need a whiteboard and I, I just can't be creative and collaborate without like actually being in a physical office like that's believe it or not like one of the biggest objections a lot of really smart people have against uh remote work and i feel strongly that the people i'm talking to at least i'm like oh you like the whiteboard because you're usually the person with the whiteboard pen that's using your big voice in the office and like dictating things but one of there's a lot of subtle benefits to being decentralized in that everyone can have a voice. My argument is I think a word doc with multiple collaborators at the same time gives more people to add their opinions to things. So I think that the time frame, the synchronous work is still an important thing. But three years from now, I don't think it is gonna for, for the for the profession of software development, which is highly documented and has tons of examples in the open source community of people that are building massive projects like Linux where they don't even share like identities, right? <laughs> and so um, that's the future of work to me for software development. And I think that other uh, professions will be a fast follow around that, but there will be a bifurcation. There will be some jobs that need to be done, done geographically. There will be need to be some done jobs that need to be more synchronous, but we really do believe that software engineering will be the first default remote and default asynchronous job in the world. And that that is where we're putting our effort in. That's why we're so specialized in software engineering, because the huge purpose behind this is that it doesn't matter in the next generation where you're born, you could have a world-class software engineering uh, career and get paid just as well as somebody that was born in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And then, and then for you guys specifically, how do you handle, and I'm asking this because I know I see teams in there that, that have multi-teams, uh, whether it's like a team in China and a team in Canada or, or whatever. And, and those time zones are obviously huge, but, but for you guys, I, I know you don't have it quite that gap. Um, and was that, but as, I guess my first question is, was that by design? Um, and secondly, like, how would you handle like non-asynchronous workforces? If you, uh, that was you. How would I handle asynchronous workforces? A, yeah, yeah. How would you handle yeah. asynchronous workforces? Yeah. yeah. Honestly, I just use it as a learning opportunity to adopt, um, like asynchronous, best, best asynchronous practices. We're not perfect. We strive to be really leading when it comes to how we organize ourselves and how we minimize asynchronous meetings. Um, but I kind of, my analogy is like this new modality of building things. I lived through the transition from web-based apps to mobile-first apps. And at the beginning, mobile-first was kind of a toy. And it was like, ah, oh, it doesn't even copy and paste, right? But then quite quickly, we evolved to being like, oh no, this is like, enables us to do so many different things that we didn't even think about, right? And like, you weren't thinking about Uber when you first, when the first iPhone came out, right? And so we think that the modality of async, remote first and asynchronous is really proper distributed digital by design organizations. There's so many things we don't know yet about how they're gonna have advantages that I would almost take it 
it as back then, if you were a leading CEO, you actually kind of ditched your, 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 your desktop and you tried to use your everything on your mobile phone for like a week just to find where the, where the, where the best practices were and kind of get used to that and know where things needed to be built to make that a better uh, form function. And so I think that was, that's what I would do. If I was put into a situation where everyone was async, I'd be like, oh shit, I got to upgrade my asynchronous communication, my synchronous communication. I really got to do a lot more looms. And I really got to think about how do you build culture in this new uh, paradigm? Yeah, that's really interesting. And so uh, I have a really weird example in my head, but it's kind of one that came to mind. Let's say- I love it. I want weird things. Uh, let's say you found like like an engineer that you just had to have on your team, but he was in Singapore and you have nobody on your team in Singapore. Would you consider hiring him or her or they um, and having them work your hours or, but let's just presume that like you just have to have this person, right? What, what would you kind of do in that situation? First of all, I'd reframe it as, um, are we like the right place for this person to reach their goals. Mm -hmm. And if this was like something that was, I'd almost in that case, because it's like, it's really going to be an extra burden. Like, is this irresistible to this person? Like, can we provide the tech of learning environment for them? Then honestly, the default, I'd start the conversation with what serves them best. Like I really would, I really would do that, man. And if, and like, you can't get the most out of an employee that's not getting any sleep. You can't get the most out of an employee that's not eating the right food or getting time to exercise and do those basic necessities. Like this is a very big mentality shift that is a grateful one from like the, honestly, like the hustle hard mentality that I kind of like was brought up into like in the early 2000s when it came to startups, it was like sleep was for the week type of thing. But I think one of the cool things about building decentralized organizations is that people don't need to conform to an office. The office needs to conform to them. So if this was somebody that you believe can make a huge contribution to your organization, it was the right opportunity for them. I'd start the conversation with them and go, okay, how do we build employment around you, right? And so I think that that is also one of the benefits. It's, it, it's, it's you don't do it ju- as an organization. You can't just be like, oh, we're just gonna like be a nonprofit for a bunch of human beings. You gotta make, as an organization, your self-interest should be that the people on your team are like you're designing employment around them. But by increasing the flexibility of your operations, you're also now opening up your employment funnel to so many different people that have historically had barriers to employment. So maybe somebody has to live close to their parents because there's this, they have to be like the primary caretaker. Historically in an office-based environment, those people didn't, couldn't participate in the startup economy, right? And so that person might need synchronous time as well. We've got team members that they're really only available for a morning a, a, a week in terms of synchronous time, but they're absolutely a delight to work with and they produce just as much as their, their, their counterparts. We have folks that are coming in and out of uh, on and off of parental leave. That's another way that we were able to like that. Remember back to like the benefits of being a remote first organization. One was capital mm-hmm. efficiency. We don't need to have, you know, kombucha taps anymore or ping pong tables. You can actually pay <laughs> people a living wage. But the second one was access to talent. Now, access to talent is a ge- geographic thing, but it's also a time frame thing. And so if you're not building a flexible organization that is welcoming different ways for people to contribute to what you're doing, you're going to be at a significant disadvantage to the ones that are more accessible. For sure. And I, and I think it's done a lot of, a lot of things for, for young parents that maybe previously wouldn't have made that risk into maybe it was full-time office work. Right. 
Yeah, man. And I remember that, I was that, like, before having my kid, um, Hussein from Snap Travel had a kid while he was starting that thing. And I was just like, hey, man, you got any advice? He's like, just get a, an office really close to your house was his advice. So I followed that through too much because <laughs> garage. <laughs> That's very literal. Um, I want to get to some questions that the people are asking, and, and then I want to talk a little bit about, about partnerships and how you've been able to you know, work with great startups and stuff like that. Um, one of the questions is a very tactical one from Raphael, um, and he's asking about any thoughts on knowledge sharing or organization. So for them specifically, they, they've been testing with stuff like Stack Overflow for, for working with their teams. Uh, I'm guessing in extension that would be GitHub and other stuff, but then they tend to drift back to DMs and Slack. Um, and so I think it's talking about, you know, obviously there's better tools out there every day to kind of make processes more efficiency, but there's a, there's a transition, right. In, as in anything, how do you know, teams, especially as teams that are scaling kind of move to these more supposedly efficient tools. So I want to make sure I'm getting the question, right. So we're talking about knowledge sharing within an organization. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Raph, if I'm wrong, just, just, uh, punch, punch in. But that's, that's um, how I understand it. I think that there's, mm, I'm sure our CEO Tiffany would have a different opinion because she's the one who like really thinks through future work and how we do these things. Like for us at this stage, if it's not an Asana, it doesn't exist. That's like one of the most core things, right? Like that's like a little bit of our record of work for the company. And so that that can share, uh, that, that gives you a little more free form. And honestly, there's just a whole, group of tools out there that are kind of like slack is good but it's like i wouldn't even call that structured information right i still right. think that i honestly don't have a solid opinion on the structured information side of things like we tried notion we like notion but now we're just using more google docs for probably convenience <laughs> um i think in terms of information flows I think that's one of the most interesting places that will evolve because of decentralized organizations, the documentation side of things. So I'm just going to say, Raph, I don't have the real answer. There's probably people on my team that could probably chime in with their answers today. But I think overall, the topic of information flows and decentralized organizations is a really exciting one because for those, those are going to evolve and they're going to create more resilient, anti-fragile organizations because here's the benefit when you actually document things properly it becomes less of a trauma when people come on board to contribute and leave to go and follow another journey. And that creates a really, really resilient organization that I think will show up in multiples in terms of your valuation, you know, five to 10 years from now. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, and, and I want to give a shout out to my colleague, Timmy. So go ahead. Another smart person told me this, and I'll be really quick. Working in an office is like playing flag football. Working in a proper decentralized organization is like the NFL. You need to be more talented, more collaborative, more organized. People used to think at the beginning of what we were doing, I was like, oh, I don't want some guy working out of a coffee shop. Like, oh, I need everyone in the office. And the office is just ripe with biases, ripe with unstructured information, totally fragile. When people leave and come, it's very, very disruptive because you're literally moving people's physical space. Like, if that person likes to uh, eat uh, bologna and tuna, warm bologna and tuna fish sandwiches, and they like to throw it in the microwave at the lunchroom, it literally affects everybody. You know, I can eat that here and it doesn't affect anybody at, 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 my, at, my, at my office. I think that like one of these things, it's, it's Raph's keying in on something that 
documentation is difficult. Getting that structured information is difficult, but it is valuable. And I think that's one of the most, like, you're just going to see, just like SaaS companies have a huge, like, you know, three times higher valuation than, you know, uh, on-prem software. Like you're going to see bumps in valuations for properly decentralized organizations because they're more difficult to build and grow, but they're more lasting. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I was, I was just going to, I was going to say like to me, a colleague on our team, she's, she's been harping on us to uh, get all our documentation and get her shit together. So, so keep doing it. It's good work. <laughs> yeah, man. And it has to start from the top. And so like information flows are key. And that's why you need to have somebody that's like a forward looking operator. Like I do think that, you know, remote first operations is going to be kind of a new job title that's going to really pop up in the same way that back when I worked at Hootsuite, there's no such thing as like a social media manager at the beginning, but then that became like an actual job. I think there's going to be like a lot of new jobs and new specialties that the smart organizations will adapt to. That's awesome. Yeah. And on that plug, we are looking at hiring a social media manager. So if anybody knows anybody, I'm just going to throw it out there. Also, there by go. the time you've been listening to this, we may have hired, but you know, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to close by talking a little bit about, about partnerships. So, so like, if you just scroll to commit.dev's website, you'll see a lot of great partners that, that you're working with. Um, and in fact, uh, we met here because of mutual connection through, through your partnership with or RBC. So, so there's, there's, there's definitely partnerships on different levels. Um, what do you recommend for other startups that are looking to build these fundamental partnerships, whether it's corporate like banking or, or in your case, like, you know, obviously you're working with a lot of startups. Um, that's the first part of my question. I'll throw the other part and then I'll let you kind of go through. A uh, second part is if, you know, startups are listening and they want to, you know, work with commit, how can they do that? Right. Um, so the first one is more around, like, actually, when I go back to my experience, it was like BD partnerships is one of the things that I think that I've built some level of expertise on. So, you know, with commit, um, I can reflect on the commit stuff, which was a lot of those were personal relationships. Um, again, we delighted the hell out of engineers, which delighted the hell out of the founders, which those founders <laughs> told other founders. And so we actually, we have like almost zero ways for founders to get a hold of us. So I guess here's the way that if somebody, I'll answer the second first part. It's like, it's all through intros. Like we have hundred uh, percent of our, our founders that we partnership, either I know them directly or they come recommended by somebody that's a trusted source. Sam, you're a trusted source. So if somebody wants an intro, you have my email. You can just introduce them to me directly. And then we've got a team that like uh, basically kind of um, interviews the startup and just, it's not necessarily whether or not we think they're successful, but there's a very specific, the reason why our system's so efficient is there's a specific profile of startup that we look for. And so if you are like deep, deep machine learning, well, we're not gonna be able to solve problems for you on that. So we're not there yet, but so there's a specific profile of startups that our team kind of vets with. And the other thing we do with that, which is um, we also just provide free advice and technical advice. So Sam, I think I like let you know that we've got a, open source developer program uh, that is totally free that we're kind of beta testing right now. And so if there's any founders out there that, hey, they might be interested in hiring, but they also just like need some advice on how to get the core infrastructure set up so that they're building a scalable app that can grow with their customer base. Those are things that we do for free. Like, so we make sure that any founder that reaches out to us, we're generous with our information, our time to help de-risk the technical side of building a startup. So that's 
number one. Reach out to Sam if you want an intro because <laughs> he'll make a direct intro. But then the second part is, um, again, with our growth, it's just if you delight people, they tell other people and then there's growth there. So it's kind of that partnership wasn't that complicated. But if you're talking more like, like partnerships, capital P partnerships, like you're going to go and pitch an organization and figure it out. Like there's lots of things, but the core things that I think about are you're not partnering with that organization. You're partnering with a human being and they're partnering with you. You know, you're representing one organization that can solve a problem there or they're, they're, they're looking for it. And it's like, make sure you have a really good relationship with the person that you're sitting across the table from. Uh, it's really, really fundamental. And there's a lot of stuff that gets you there. But one of the core questions I always ask, and I've done hundreds and hundreds of partnerships. That was kind of like one of the things that was my team was responsible at uh, Hootsuite and other places. Ask them, how do you make them look good? It's a really, really, really simple, plain English language. And you kind of got to like, make sure you got to read the room to make sure you can ask that question. But usually it's like right before you move forward, you pitch it up to your people that other, other people that need to make decisions. Really understand what, why this person, this human being is making this job. Again, you're, there's the institution, but there's the individual. And so sometimes they'll be like, oh man, like I really need a win before the end of the year. You know, our end of year is March and like some of these things didn't pan out. And it's like, if we can get this in before March, that would make me look good. And then you go, cool. I will do the best I can to preserve that for you. I know that's important to you as a human being. That's, I will let you know if it's ever in threat that it's going to get pushed to April or May or whatever. Like you're really zeroing into like the thing that they care deeply about, like the one thing, not the all the things, but the one thing. And then it opens up to what's the thing that they can do in return to make you look good. And for you, it might be your first partnership is like, listen, this is our first partnership. We really want to make a big deal out of it. I know you do like tens of these to dozens of these a year. For us, this is our first major one. I really need to be able to tell the world about this. Like, I really need to be able to put this into a press release and be able to like uh, disclose this publicly. Like if you can fight for me on that, I'll fight for you on this. And then you just kind of distill everything down to two human beings that are looking eye to eye over zoom now and like making a commitment to each other that they're going to preserve the most important thing for the, each other. Because at the end of the day, if you're making that person look good, it's helping the organization and it's going to give you a better chance of having a successful partnership. I love it. Going personal. It's, a, it's really good advice. And uh, yeah, if you guys are listening, you're a launch member, stay tuned. We're definitely not done with uh, Greg's team yet. We have something coming in the works probably. I, I don't want to do timelines because it's confusing whenever whoever's listening to it, but but very soon from, from when we're talking, um, but but definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, we're right up against the hour now. So, so I just want to kind of thank you, Greg. Uh, this is a really great time. Like I learned a ton and, and I think it definitely resonated with, with not just, not just your conviction and your passion, but just, you know, the methodicalness of, of how you're, you're solving the problems you're solving. Um, I'll, I'll leave it with this. Like if anybody who's listening publicly in the chat room or whatever, they want to reach out to you um, and pretend that I don't exist for a second, like what should they bring to the table and how can they reach out to whether it's you personally or, or someone on your team? Uh, well, I mean, honestly, my email is just my, you can probably guess my email. Everyone's got the same email, <laughs> right? Like first name dot last name at company URL, yeah. you know? So, uh, it's easy to get a hold of me that way. Um, and you know, it's just like, what, 
what's specifically just being as specific as possible with what's the problem you'd like to solve right like i think that in general in any email like you can't write it in three sentences there usually what happens when we're like earlier stages we try to write like a like a, a, a novel of like hey you should meet up with me because of x y and z but it's like, no, just cut to the chase, put three sentences. What are you looking to do? How can you minimize the time impact on the other person on your end? You know, in general, most entrepreneurs want to help other entrepreneurs just because none of us got here by ourselves. And so it's the same with me. For sure. And I appreciate that. And, and, and I love the bit about three sentences because if, if anybody who's worked with me at launch for, for a while, they know every time they say, hey, I want to meet Greg. My first thing is, okay, well, send me an email. Like, I know what you want but I needed in an email in three sentences explaining who you are, what you do and what you're looking for, because that helps Greg decide, okay, am I the best person to talk to you or is it my colleague or is it not anybody to commit at all? And you should just Google it or, or whatever. Right. Um, you know, make it easy for me to help you do intros is, is my big thing. Cause I'm lazy sometimes. Yeah. It's not even an asshole thing. It's not like, it's just like when you get one of those emails, you're like, ah, what does this person want? Whatever. What happens most often is you're like, ah, I don't have time to deal with this. Like, let me get back to this. And all you're doing is create anxiety for that receiver because generally you don't get back to those things because you just, you get inundated. It's just like, it creates anxiety in the world if you're not specific. So be, treat the individual on the other end to be like really specific as, as Sam said, um, because you'll, you'll, the world doesn't need more anxiety, especially after the last year and a half. For sure. And uh, with that, we'll end again, really appreciate you and your team's time. This is, I had, a, I had an awesome time. I can't speak for everybody else. Um, hopefully it was valuable for, for anybody listening out there, but um, commit.dev, check it out. If you guys are building, building a team, um, especially anything technical, um, talk to these guys. They're, they're around and they're literally everywhere. They're decentralized. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Greg. And appreciate Thanks, everybody sir. listening on live. Thanks, All right. Everyone. Take care.